Did you love glow-in-the-dark toys as a kid? I did. It was always so exciting to get the little plastic bug out of the bottom of the cereal box and hurry to the nearest closet and close the door to see it shine, and then came the letdown, right? Uh, didn't, it never shine as much as you wanted to. Uh, those toys glow because chemists mix in phosphors with the plastics, and those phosphors absorb energy from one light source and then emit it as a glowing light. The discovery of phosphorus itself was a happy accident all the way back in the 1660s. A German fellow, an alchemist named Hennig Brand, was trying to create gold out of things like alchemists do. In his case, Mr. Brand was trying to create gold out of urine. He collected 1,500 gallons of it in his basement lab and started cooking. You act like cooking down urine in a, in a 1600s basement would be a bad thing. Uh, <laughs> at the end of his experiments, there was no gold, but there was a waxy glowing substance, phosphorus. And you know what? Hey, glowing all you want, but we use phosphorus all the time now for all sorts of things. 300 years later, in 1962, glow sticks were also developed accidentally. The chemist who stumbled upon the formulation had no idea that glow sticks had become a thing in American culture. 50 years after he created what led to the glow sticks, the chemical compound, he was told by an interviewer that his fluorescent goop had become a staple at events across the globe. And he, his response was, is that so? Maybe my granddaughter will think I'm cool now. So he didn't have a patent or anything on it. So you Christians here tonight have been made to glow in the dark. It wasn't an accident. Uh, this has been the plan all along. Before planet Earth was spinning on its axis, God, the creator of light, what's the first thing he did? Let there be light. He planned to illuminate the darkness, not just practically with the sun and the moon and the stars. He planned to illuminate the darkness of this world with his children. He scatters us into time and place so that we can reflect his light in a dark and dying world. Right now, Paul is deep into a description of the differences between the Christian life and the non-Christian life and just how different they are. In these verses, his focus is on how we as believers light up the dark by walking with Jesus. So we begin in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. What are the things he's talking about? Well, Paul's referencing the sins that he listed and we took a look at last week in verses 1 through 5. Quite an unpleasant list. The lifestyle of ungodly sexual expression, greed, foul language, impurity, idolatry, uh, things that fall under the umbrella that are, is earlier called the way of the Gentiles, the way of the world. Paul was very blunt in verse 5 where we read, For know and recognize this, every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. And we learn that to live 
in habitual practice of these things reveals that a person is not a Christian. It doesn't mean that every single person that has ever committed these sins is not a Christian or that if you're a Christian and you commit the sin of, uh, you know, vulgar, foul language that you lose your Christianity. Paul's talking about a life lived in these practices, the habitual uh, walking in these things. Uh, They do not have a place in the coming kingdom. Very clear, very blunt. But then more than that, Paul goes a step further and explains just how bad things are. He reveals here in verse 6 that God's wrath is coming to judge individuals and nations who partake in these things, who practice these sins. And we know that there's a future judgment coming on the whole earth, uh, and, and no one will escape it who is not a believer in Jesus Christ. But there's also a here and now judgment. It's not just coming someday in the far future. It comes. And in fact, your uh, version may say God's wrath comes on on the people who practice these sins. It's a linguist tell us that it is the present tense, that God's wrath comes even now in ways small and great. As Christians, if we want to glow in the dark, we, we first of all have to have a proper understanding about sin and righteousness, good and evil, what is right and what is wrong. And the only way to have a proper understanding on those things is to have it revealed to us on the pages of scripture because God there shares his truth, his explanation and revelation of what is right and what is wrong. And so Paul is giving us these warnings. He says, hey, you really need to know, right? And so much of Ephesians has been about How do we know? How do we know what God has done? How do we know who we've been made to be? How do we know what salvation really means and uh, really entails in these things? And so we need to also know the difference between right and wrong, between sin and righteousness, between good and evil. And Paul gives us these warnings. He says, listen, the devil's going to try to trap you. We heard about that in previous passages. False teachers are going to try to deceive you. The world system is going to lie to you and tell you that sin isn't really sin, it isn't really bad, it doesn't really have the consequences God says it has, it's going to gratify you and liberate you and it's going to benefit you. And we need to be wary of those messages because they're coming and they are dangerous and destructive in every life, uh, whether you're a Christian or not. Paul says, don't be deceived by the empty arguments, the shallow words. These things are devoid of substance and truth. These are words that encourage you to abandon the Lord's way, abandon the Lord's guidance and principles, and go the world's way. They offer liberation, but they deliver bondage. If you ever ordered something, and then when the package gets to you, it is not what you ordered? I'm like in the middle of a saga right now, so uh, we have some Bibles on the entryway tables for people, and when people need a Bible, they take it with them, and that's fine. So we needed a couple more. So I ordered using the same link that I did before, and then when they sent it to me, the Bible was this big, like it was a very tiny, compact Bible. I'm like, oh, what are you going to do, Amazon? So then I went back, and I ordered another Bible, the proper size, and I got that the other day, and it's literally this big. It's like some kind of monster Bible, and I just thought, this is hilarious. I put it back there. I, so there's a normal Bible, an enormous giant Bible, and then the other normal Bible. I keep getting things that I didn't order, right? The Amazon, you made promises to me about what was going to come and be delivered to my door, and instead I have these other things, right? So sin comes along, and the message of the world comes along, 
And it makes these promises, makes these arguments about how you should liberate yourself from the constriction of following the Lord and following biblical morality and all these different things. But it doesn't deliver liberation, it delivers bondage. It doesn't deliver life, it delivers death. That's what Paul has been talking about. We need to learn how to recognize this spiritual propaganda when it's broadcast to us. We need to learn how to recognize false teaching and false teachers. We need to learn how to recognize messages that may seem appealing to the natural man, but underneath are just that same old lie from the enemy, which says, has God really said? Right? So all of this, all of the propaganda of the world, all of the messages of the world, all of the offers of sin and temptation and all of that on some down deep level is just the lie from the Garden of Eden where the serpent said, has God really said? Has God really said you need to be faithful to your spouse? Has God really said that if you do this, it will destroy your life and destroy your witness and destroy opportunities? And we need to be the kind of people that are so well-versed in the word and are in communion with Jesus Christ so that when we hear these messages, we're not deceived by them. We're not confused by them. We recognize how, how empty they are and how devoid of substance they are and what lies they are. Now, talk of wrath against the wicked would, is naturally going to arouse uh, a feeling in us maybe of, yeah, they have it coming. So sick of the wicked people in the world around us and the wicked things that they do and what they do to society and how they oppress the people uh, who are weaker than them. But Paul would have us remember the grace of God. In wrath, God remembers mercy. We want to remember the mercy of God, the compassion of God, that no matter the sin, such were some of us, right? That was the message that Paul gave to the Corinthians, and it's true of the Ephesians too. They had been members of the mystery cults. They had been pagans. They had done all of these different things. Some of them were probably still doing some of these things that he's talking about. And so such were some of us. And then what happened? The Lord reached out and saved us. He offered us the gospel and, and gave us an opportunity to be redeemed and rescued out of the bondage of sin. And so as Christians, we're not here to crush evildoers. We're not here to burn them up with the light of the gospel. We're part of the rescue plan, right? So if you had, you know, when you see these search and rescue things, rescue divers, and you see them there, you know, in helicopters, and they have those crazy bright lights, they're not using light as a weapon in order to burn the person who needs rescuing. It's there to illuminate so that they can be saved, so that it can be found, uh, so that they can uh, live and not die. And so as we consider the sin in the world around us, it's always a good reminder that in wrath, God remembers mercy. And so we want to be people who are merciful because we're to mimic God and imitate him in our uh, perspectives and our attitudes and our conduct and our words. And then on top of that, it's a good biblical thing to remember that judgment begins in the house of God right? Just because we're believers doesn't mean, and now it doesn't matter what I do, and now it doesn't matter how I conduct myself. It matters all the more. Judgment begins in the house of God. You know, in his writings, Paul referenced judgment 80 times, and 60 of those times, it's directed, it, it's pointed towards believers, not unbelievers. So judgment is coming against unbelievers, and God's going to uh, uh, make right what the world has made wrong, but we want to remember mercy, Verse seven, therefore, do not become their partners. So in chapter three, Paul used this word partner once before. But there he said Gentiles had become partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So you have these opportunities for partnership. 
Whose partner are you going to be? The whole section is about, the, about difference and choice. We can either participate with God or we can participate with an unbelieving world. We can either be partners in grace or partners in sin. That's the option. Your life, your activity, your words are part of a greater whole. That's been the message of Ephesians from the beginning. John Donne said, no man is an island, no man lives alone. And it's true. And Paul would say, all the more it's true as spiritual people who are trying to walk with God. You don't live alone. You're not an island. Paul says you're connected into the body of Christ. You're part of this magnificent, unfolding whole work that God is doing and that he specifically knits you with other specific believers in a community on purpose so that you can be built up and they can be built up and his church can be built up in, in very specific ways. And so the things that we do, they're part of a greater whole. Through your words and actions and relationships, you partner either in the family of God and his unfolding work, or you partner in the kingdom of darkness as a son or daughter of disobedience. When he talks earlier uh, in the previous verse about the disobedient, the, literally the term is the sons of disobedience. And Paul's used this image of us being in a family, us being children of God, sons and daughters of God before. And so it's very, very much a contrast. Whose son are you? Whose daughter are you? Which family are you a part of? One partnership leads to growth and life and glory. The other leads to corruption and waste and death. If you habitually practice the way of the Gentiles, specifically in the context of the sins Paul listed in the previous section, you cannot further the gospel. That's just the, that's just the deal. You can't further the gospel. You can't build up the church. You can't bear spiritual fruit. You can't fulfill your life's purpose. You cannot delight God. You cannot grow in the likeness of Christ. You cannot be who you're supposed to be if you're walking in the way of the Gentiles, if you're practicing these sins. Paul cannot be clearer. It can't happen. It's a choice that we have to make. What are we going to do? Are we going to walk with the Lord or are we not going to walk with the Lord? When a, purpose, uh, when a person practices sin, their life becomes futile, their understanding becomes darkened, their hearts become hard, and they will be excluded from the life of God. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. That's what happens. So sin is pleasurable for a time, but this is what happens when I practice sin. These terrible, terrible side effects, right? It's like one of those commercials about like, you take this weird pill, go ask your doctor, and it will do one thing for you, maybe, and then it will do like 50 other things for you that you don't want it to do, but go ahead and take it anyway. Verses 7 and 11 call us as Christians to radical nonconformity to the world around us. Don't partner. Don't participate. That doesn't mean we completely remove ourselves from interaction with unbelievers. In a different epistle, Paul would say, yeah, that's impossible. You can't remove yourself from all interaction with unbelievers. Uh, unbelievers with non-Christians. And the Lord doesn't want you to anyway. He wants you to be a city on a hill. He wants you to be light in the dark. But it means that we do not conform to their way of life, to the system of the world around us. It means that we live and think and decide and conduct ourselves in a totally different way, God's way, the way that's revealed on the pages of scripture. Verse eight, for you were once darkness, but now you're light in the world. Walk uh, as children of light. Sorry, light in the Lord. Let's do that again. <laughs> For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So it's not that you were in the dark, 
we were, but it's not that you were in the dark, you were darkness. I'm going to do my very best to avoid doing like a Bane impression right now for all of you Dark Knight Rises fans. You were darkness. Our hearts, depraved and dominated by sin, generate darkness in this fallen world. And this is why human society is the way it is. And this is why it doesn't matter the generation, it doesn't matter the political arrangement, it doesn't matter the number of laws or the quality of those laws, it doesn't matter the level of education or wealth or poverty. I mean, there are some better societies and some worse societies, don't get me wrong. But no matter the society, in every single one, no matter how small or large, no matter how enlightened or barbaric, in all of them, eventually you will find theft and violence and jealousy and hatred and corruption. Why? It's not because we can't find the right formula of laws. It's because our fallen hearts manufacture the darkness that then goes out and corrupts society, right? And so we always want to remind ourselves that humanity... Our nation, our community, our own selves, we need heart transformation more than social rehabilitation. Now, social rehabilitation can be a very good thing. Laws are a good thing. Uh, uh, better systems and better political arrangements and better ways of governing than others, th that exists. Happy to live in the West with our heritage and our tradition of law and order and those sorts of things. I don't want to live in a different era, in a different place under some crazed autocrat, right? But it doesn't matter what society we're in. There is no utopia outside of God's kingdom. We learned on Sunday morning, even when Jesus is ruling and reigning physically on planet Earth, there's going to be people who sin, who refuse him, who reject him, who say, nah, we don't think so. They're going to rebel still. Why? Because that's how bleak and dark the human heart is. It manufactures darkness. And so we need heart transformation. And our leaders need heart transformation. And our communities need it. But now, if you are born again, you are no longer darkness, you're dead to sin, and you are light in the Lord. Now, that's a very important clause. Do you notice the difference? You were darkness, and now you are light in the Lord. You were generating corruption and wickedness on your own. You're a little sin factory, a little corruption factory ruining the world, right? <laughs> that's what all of us do left to our own devices. But now, as a Christian... You are light as long as you abide in Christ because he is the light of the world. He is the one who brings fruit in your life. He's the one that shines through you, right? So you're not generating light on your own. You reflect the light of Jesus Christ as you abide in Christ. Christ is the great alchemist taking the absolute trash waste of humanity not unlike our friend Mr. Brand in the 1600s, but he can turn it to gold, right? He says he will refine us and bring us as gold, beauty from ashes. He can take a ruined human life and fill it with glorious purpose. He can bring life from death. He's the great, magnificent alchemist. There's no starker difference between dark and light, right? We were trapped, blind, and hopeless, and then Jesus shined the gospel into the dark, and we who believe have been rescued out of darkness, 
and made children of light, a new identity, a new reality, new ability and perspective. And since this is the case, Paul says, so walk as children of light. And it's the fourth time Paul has talked about our walk in this book. Walking means the way we live, our thoughts, our choices, our actions, our words, our attitudes, our perspectives, the way we interact with people. He said, walk worthy of your calling with which you've been called. He said, don't walk as the Gentiles do. He said, walk in love. And now he says, walk as children of light. Well, how do I do that? What does that mean to walk as a child of light? I wonder how many more times that's going to happen. How do we do it? First, by reflecting the light of the world, which is what we saw last time. We reflect the character of God as we imitate him. That's the message of verses 1 through 5. Now, elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians 5 and Romans 13, both books written by Paul, we're also told that walking in the light means things like living with self-control and putting on the armor of faith and encouraging one another and not quarreling and being spiritually awake another theme he'll return to at the end of our passage. And so walking as children of light means, hey, be what God has made you to be. Receive what he has provided for you. Put on his garments. And this has been a theme throughout the last number of passages, putting on Christ and reflecting him and imitating him. This is what God has made you to be. This is what he's been working on since before the foundation of the earth. This has been the plan all along. And so now let's do it. And so we might apply verse eight this way. You are no longer what you were. The question is, are you what you are? Right? So the message of the Bible is if you're a Christian, God has made you these things. God has provided these things. God is doing these things in your life. Not that you have to earn it or find it or merit or anything like that. Here's what God has done, and it has been his plan all along. And so the question each of us need to ask ourselves is, okay, Am I what I am made to be? And if not, why not? What's putting distance between me and the Lord? What is is the obstacle? What is keeping me from laying hold of these provisions and all of these different things? Because God has done great things for us. Are we walking in them? Are we glowing in the dark? Verse 9, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. The supernatural result of walking with Jesus is that spiritual fruit will grow in our lives. That's the work the Spirit does in us. But if left to our own devices, we know that we'll slide back into the natural production of sin, right? Because we still have that sin nature within us. (laughs) Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take this handheld mic and we're going to switch to that if the batteries work. And now, I'm sorry, guys. I've become one of these handheld mic guys. It's my absolute least favorite thing. I hate it so much, but it's for you so that you don't have to be startled by it anymore. Okay. (laughs) So the supernatural result of walking with Jesus is that spiritual fruit is going to grow in our lives, right? The fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. That's the work the Spirit does in us. In fact, in your version, it may say the fruit of the Spirit. There's some argument in the manuscript over whether it should be fruit of light or fruit of the Spirit. They're the same thing. So it's not that we make ourselves good. It's not that you generate your own light or generate your own righteousness. That's impossible apart from the Lord. 
He's going to do it by his power. It's his delight to do that in you. He who began the good work in you is going to be the one who completes it. But we partner with him. We walk with him. We cooperate. We participate in what he wants to do. Going back to our glow-in-the-dark analogy, anyone who's ever had a glow-in-the-dark toy, you know that what do you have to do to make it glow-in-the-dark? You first have to take it to a lamp or take it outside and expose it to the light. And so you hold it up to the light bulb for a while, and only after you've done that can it start to glow because the phosphates in there are taking the energy from that light onto itself and then emitting it in the glow. You have to do it. It can't generate it itself. And so when those toys are exposed to the light, they can't help but glow in the dark. That's the byproduct. It's how they've been designed. It's how they've been made to function. And in the same way, spiritually, as we abide in Christ, the Lord says, and now I have designed you and I'm doing a work in your life. You didn't do it. I'm the alchemist that has made this possible. I've made life where there was death. I'm bringing gold out of your ruin and you're going to emanate glow my characteristics, my spiritual fruit to the world around you. The fruits Paul lists here, goodness, righteousness, and truth, they're all characteristics of God himself. As we walk with God, orienting and calibrating our lives according to his truth and his will, his likeness then shines through us, manifesting in godly kindness, godly generosity, godly truth. We're Christian. We're people who are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. As we partake in his divine nature, Peter says in his letter, and as we imitate God, we become more and more like him. Verse 10, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Testing means analyze, trying to learn or examine or discern or finding out by experience. Now, a spiritual legalist comes along and says, okay, I have identified all the things that I should do and all the things that I shouldn't do and I don't do the do, don't things and I do do the do things and therefore God is now obligated to bless me and benefit me and, and be pleased with me, right? Now, a, a legalistic person wouldn't really say that, but that's what legalism is about, right? We think of the Pharisees or we think of super legalistic traditions, and that's effectively the arrangement in their minds. But the fact of the matter is living the Christian life isn't nearly as cut and dry as a legalist wants to pretend. There are things that are specific and definite, but much of our Christian lives will be spent figuring out what the Lord wants us to do in the situations we find ourselves in. What did Paul say? Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. You're going to have to discern and figure it out. This is what the Lord desires for us. One resource says, the Bible gives general principles for life, but followers of Christ must use wisdom to discern how to apply those principles in the concrete issues of their lives. So I'm not saying that there's not hard and fast commands and rules in the Bible. There absolutely are. There are a lot of things in your day-to-day -day life where you're like, Lord, what do you want me to do in this situation? How do you want me to respond to this person? How, how do you want me to orient my circumstances in my life based upon the, the facts of my life right now? And Paul would say here and elsewhere that we test what is pleasing to the Lord. We work out our salvation in fear and trembling. How do we do that? Well, Paul would say in Romans 12, here's how you do it. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So as we abide in the Lord and as we obey him and as we trust him and take in his word, our minds are transformed. And as we look at what the world is doing, you say, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to conform to the, the, the way of this world. Instead, I'm going to go with God. I'm going to walk with him. He's going to transform my mind because that's the work that he's doing. And then guess what? You are able to discern what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. You know what the real problem is? I can't talk with this hand anymore. (laughs) That's the real problem. But what an exciting thought to realize that your life really can please and delight the God of the universe. We can bring him joy. Living the Christian life is not about getting God's anger off of you, about getting God's rage off of you. Now, wrath is coming on the disobedient, but we're believers. He's redeemed us. He saved us. And now he says, I pour out my grace and my love on you. So living the Christian life isn't like, how do I get God's rage off of me? We learn from the Bible that he loves us and he's interested in us. He loves to hear you sing and he loves to be with you and to use you and enrich your life with his grace. That's what the Christian life is about pleasing the Lord, walking in the opportunities that he's carved out for you. He says, I've prepared good works for you beforehand and that you would walk in them and that you would discover them and that together we would go and that I would delight in you and you would delight in me. That's what the Lord wants. Verse 11, don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. What does it mean to expose the works of darkness? The term can mean rebuke or convict or refute. But let's remember the analogy we're in. The world is dark, very dark. You were a part of that darkness, but now you're saved. And as a Christian, you can go into the darkness and reflect the light of God's truth and righteousness and goodness. And as you glow in the dark, Christ's light exposes evil for what it is. One translation puts it this way. Let your life show by contrast how dreary and futile these things are. Our lives as Christians should be so bright and magnificent that people in the dark look and say, well, that's what I want. I want in on that. How does this work practically? Well, there are at least three ways that we expose the darkness. The words can mean things that we speak in private. As you rebuke a fellow believer who you see is in sin and you say, hey, I'm speaking to you in private the way that we're directed to uh, in the New Testament and saying, hey, what you're doing is wrong, and let me tell you the truth of God's word. There's also sort of the public proclamation, the public preaching, not just in a formal church sense, but taking stands and saying, hey, this over here, this law is wrong. Hey, this activity, it is wrong, and we're not going to have anything to do with it. But it also can mean simply our conduct, which will contrast the fruitlessness of darkness with the fruitfulness of light. And just by living our lives, as the Lord does the thing he wants to do, it exposes how fruitless the tree over there is because my tree is so laden with fruit. That's the idea. Our goal in exposing sin is not to harm the sinner. The goal is that the exposure therapy would convince them of what's really going on and what's really possible and that they would realize that they are trapped in rotten corruption and that there's an alternative. God shined a bright light on Saul of Tarsus, right, didn't he? Shined a light on him and stopped him where he was. And he says, let me explain to you what's really going on. He said, I saw this light. I heard this voice and I realized, oh oh my goodness, everything I've been doing my whole life is wrong. I'm not pleasing God. I'm bringing wrath on myself. 
I'm not helping God, I'm blaspheming him. And so God shined a light on Saul of Tarsus in an effort to rescue him. And aren't we glad the Lord did that? Of course we are. We can expose fruitlessness by simply being people who bear fruit. If I'm fed up with the evil around me, if I'm enraged by the corruption of society, one of the best things I can do to combat it is simply to bear fruit, which will happen as I walk with God and obey his commands, right? So it's not like, okay, well, I have to bear a bunch of fruit. No, allow the Lord to bear fruit in your life. And that's one of the best things that you can do in order to help society around you. That's what Paul's talking about. Verse 12, for it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Okay, wait, if we're supposed to expose the works of darkness, why is he saying don't even talk about them? It seems confusing. Paul wants us to have a proper perspective on sin. It's not a trifle. It's not a joke. It's not a small thing. It's shameful, terrible, rancid, dangerous, destructive. One commentator writes, Paul wants to convey the seriousness of these sexual sins without discussing the details of the depravity. And so we shouldn't take sin lightly or glibly, not in our own lives, not in the church, not in society. We should see it and evaluate it the way God sees it and respond accordingly. Verse 13, everything exposed by the light is made visible. For what makes everything visible is light. You've probably seen those terrible experiments where they shine a black light on a hotel bed. Isn't that just about the worst thing you've ever seen or heard of? The light makes all the grime visible. And guess what? Some hard choices have to be made then. People say, bring a black light with you to a hotel. Nope. Not unless you're willing to immediately pack up and leave and go somewhere else to the next hotel where the exact same thing is going to happen. Uh, that's where I become a ignorance is bliss kind of person, right? But so here we are, glowing in the dark, the light of Jesus Christ, by preaching the truth, by lovingly but faithfully calling out sin in our society and especially within the church, and by simply bearing spiritual fruit. All of those things make us shine in the dark and expose evil deeds. We glow, and as we glow, the fruitless grime of evil is exposed. And when it's exposed, choices can be made. When sin is revealed in our lives as Christians, we can cleanse ourselves of it. And when unbelievers are exposed to the light, they often turn to Christ and are saved. Not always, but that's what happened to Paul. That's what happened to the Ephesians. That's what happened to you and I. And so we want to expose in an effort to rescue. Verse 14 concludes, Therefore it is said, get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Scholars generally agree that this quote came from an ancient Christian hymn that would have been familiar to the church at Ephesus. There are some who make a case that Paul himself wrote it. I like that. I think that's pretty neat. We don't think of Paul as a songwriter, but there's good evidence that songs are hidden in Ephesians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1, and maybe he wrote this song here. The line of the song given comes from Isaiah 26 and 60, sort of loose uh, uses of passages from those chapters. And so, you know, just a little aside devotional, we want our worship to always be scriptural and biblical. It's a really good way for our church services to glow in the dark because God's word is a lamp and a light after all. But as we close, considering this song, what does the Christian life offer to a person trapped and dying in the dark? It offers life where there was death, an awakening of the mind to truly understand for the first time, real enlightenment. Most of all, 
It offers the presence of God himself in your life. Christ will shine on you. How? Because he comes and is with you personally. He draws you to himself and he pours into you his power and his grace and his goodness, and then you start radiating it back out. He's not just the wizard behind a curtain that no one's allowed to interact with, that that removes himself from his people. No, he's God with us. He's turned his face to us. He lets his face shine on us, and his presence gives us power. In Exodus 33, the Lord said to Moses, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses answered him, and he said, if your presence does not go, don't make us go up from here. I and your people will be distinguished by this from all other people on the face of the earth, the presence of God. And after Moses had that interaction with the Lord, what happened? He came down the mountain and his face shone. He was glowing, literally. He was radiant. And so in a spiritual way, in a meaningful way, may God shine the light of his goodness through our lives as we walk with him in this dark world, glowing as we go.